we are about to chat about my favorite problem-solving court. Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. We believe that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. This is Kat. And I'm here with Jack. And today we are talking about baby court. We are super lucky to have Andrea Peak here with us today. Andrea is a technical assistance specialist with Safe Babies, a program of zero to three. What can you share with us today about what Safe Babies is? The Safe Babies approach, or as it's known in Florida as an early childhood court, or um, sometimes they're referred to as infant toddler court teams, it's an approach. It's not a strict model that gets implemented in communities. It really works to transform the child welfare into a practice of child well-being by using the science of early childhood development to meet the urgent needs of infants and toddlers. And a lot of the work focuses on building community capacity at the same time as the active, you know, families that are hitting dependency. It's just a different way of working with this very fragile and specific population. Safe Babies also works to kind of build that particular community or in some state systems where these are being implemented across a statewide structure is to build that capacity to work collectively with families and really putting the family themselves at the center of all the decisions that are being made. They also work to really identify within the community and build up equity and an individualized um, continuum of services for infants, toddlers, and their families. It's constantly, the work is constantly evolving and we're changing when, as we learn more and as the science changes and what, you know, we work with the data, what our outcomes and what seems to be working and what doesn't seem to be working. And ultimately, it really strives to make the system more responsive to the individual family's needs based on asking a family to meet the needs of the system. Which basically is saying that it's going to be more customized to the family, right? Instead of just like, this is the list that we give every family. Actually looking at the family and see what they need and what's actually going to help them. Right. Instead of like, hey, come meet our criteria. We're creating criteria to what will suit you. Right. For example, so say maybe the allegations were some substance use and, you know, mom or dad doesn't have a job or and even a lot of times, which is really inappropriate, we're removing because the family's in poverty and people systems sometimes confuse poverty with neglect. And just because a family's impoverished does not mean that they're necessarily neglectful. And it's because of the lack of resources. And so this approach works to build up not only work individualized with these families, but we 
also work in that local community and state level to build up the capacity to help support so that families aren't reliant on systems to get the help that they need. So there's a soft place to land for them versus, you know, having to come into the traumatic experience of child welfare. The goal is to prevent that from even happening in the first place. So sometimes people ask what the difference between a community coordinator and a caseworker is. And, you know, if you think of that parable with the babies in the river, have you ever heard that one? No, there's this village and there's these babies in the river and everybody's just standing at the riverbank trying to pull these babies out, right? So if you think of a caseworker, they're the ones that are physically, like, I gotta get this baby out of the water. They're in danger, right? They're gonna drown. These babies, there's babies, you know, going down the river. And so a coordinator is gonna start to walk upstream because they have the capacity to do so and say, why are they in the river in the first place? Why are all of these babies getting in the water? The caseworker is dealing with those immediate needs, right? To remedy and make the situation safe for the child. The coordinator is also helping in that area in a different way, but also working in the community that's surrounding and going upstream and figuring out the root cause of some of these issues to prevent it from from happening in the first place. You know, it reminds me of the meaning of the book, The Deepest Well. Have you guys oh, heard yeah, that? that? She talks about how everyone's getting sick from the water at some point. Someone needs to check the well. That's that's exactly the same thing. You know, child welfare is really tasked with like, we've got to pull these babies out. That's their job. That's their role. And they're, you know, that is their main concern that the safety concerns are no longer present. But in this type of approach, like, yes, that's the main concern. And no, we do not hold children in care longer than they need to be. But because we meet so frequently, because we're, com- we're having these engagements with families, it not only keeps the family accountable, but it keeps everybody else around the table accountable because we know we're coming back to a family team meeting. We know we're going to court within the month. And so it's really great when different sites or communities or court teams can really structure. You know, when I was working in a site, let me help you understand the thinking a little bit. Court was always on Wednesdays. That was the docket day. So what we did was we held early childhood court on the third Wednesday of the month. That docket, it was a specialized docket. There was no other traditional families in there. It was a protected space only for the the early childhood court or safe babies families. So they were heard every month on that docket. But then what we did is for those monthly family team meetings, we scheduled those on the first Wednesday of every month. So for parents who are going to be asked to eventually get a job, right? Because that's part of the case plan. It was predictable and it was consistent. For example, I'm going to make up a name, the Jones family. Court would be at 10 a.m. on the third Wednesday of the month. I would try really hard to give them the 10 a.m. slot of family team meetings on the first Wednesday of the month. So when they do go get a job, all they simply have to say is the first and third Wednesday of the month are not available to work in the morning, right? It makes it a lot easier to do all of the other things that they're being asked to do when we have consistency and routine. Um, And it's really great when you're able to do that. And it helps build that external thinking brain for parents because that's what we want them to replicate with their children, right? Routine, being consistent with things, that kind of stuff. A lot of the ways that we work, really, we're trying to model what we want families to replicate. One of the things I miss most about ECC is those you know, I love the team meetings, but those court dates, it was a kind of magic that you don't see in normal dependency, right? We all go in and it was almost like going somewhere comfortable and familiar, even though you're not there to talk about necessarily great, happy things most of the time. Like it's really sad, right? We're dealing with really hard things and people really struggling, but I just get a smile on my face every time I think about those days. And of course, baby Jack, 
basically grew up his first year in Judge Tepper's courtroom because he was there so much. It was a welcoming place for him to be. He just was always with me. So he went with me to court and nobody was annoyed if he made noise or if he was being disruptive. It was such a positive environment. I just can't even speak to it enough. Sitting through the other hearings, like, and you're rooting for these families and knowing that they're all kind of going through the same thing, which is different from a lot of families. Like, you know that they're having these team meetings and they're working with the same people you're working with, kind of like being on a team all together, you know? Yeah. And, you'd see these other, yeah and you'd see these other families that, and you would see them every month when you went and yeah. like you'd be rooting for them too. And were the stakeholder meetings before or after the docket? I can't work so, after the docket. Right. With the approach, a big piece of the approach is, um, so some, in Florida, they call them stakeholder meetings. Um, nationally, we call them an active community team meeting. And basically, that's the larger communities. So all of the traditional players, like attorneys, like the judge, the, the department, the child welfare department, you know, the providers that may be coming in and out. This is an open invitation. And my thing was always everybody in this particular community does have a stake or an interest in the welfare of infants and toddlers that also live in this community. I don't care who you are. You it affects all of us. That is a community that is dedicated to building up the capacity and really trying to change things in the way that we either work together or what's available outside of the system itself to help support families. And so we will use, in these types of court situations, we collect data. And it's not, it's de-identified for families, that kind of thing. But that really helps inform what we're doing and the way that we practice. And so we're able to show trends and differences that we're seeing with this specialized docket versus the traditional population. It was a place where we could come together and share ideas and resources so that we're not duplicating efforts. It was a way to like bring the attention to say like the local substance use treatment provider, like, hey, your wait lists are a year long. Right? Remember that ELC thing? Oh, geez. I know. And so, like, it's just, it's a matter. But sometimes because we all are working on our little piece of the pie, we forget and we have to talk to one another. So this approach is all about breaking down silos. Can I tell that story real quick? Yeah. So these stakeholder meetings are, as they're called now, active community teams. I love them because the trainings that you would put together for these meetings were so much better than any of the other trainings that were being offered for foster parents. And I learned so much. But one of the funny parts of it, because you have all these community members there, you had somebody higher up at the ELC program. Yeah. Right. And and she stood up and she was speaking and she was really telling lots of good, positive things, giving great information. And then she said something about how they really made progress on their wait list. And there was zero foster placements on the wait list at that point. I was sitting behind her. So I said, well, I'm going to foster kid on the wait list. And I didn't mean to embarrass her or anything like that. But I was just like, did I fill out a form wrong? Like, did I do something wrong? Is she talking about a different area? But I had been waiting for like a significant amount of time for one of my foster placements to receive ELC. And so when she said that, I was just surprised. I was like, well, how is there no, how are there new foster placements on the list if I'm on the list? And she was like, wow, like, give me the information. I'm going to get that fixed. I hadn't even pulled in my driveway and I got a call from the ELC program apologizing that the wait was so long and letting me know that it had been approved. Just by being able to attend the meeting, first of all, she was able to get information 
that whatever number they had given her that day was not accurate. And I was able to get information about how to get my, my foster son set up on ELC. So us being there together solved the problem that day and also might have solved other problems if there was something not matching with the data that was being given to her. And I remember on my way out of the courtroom that day, because you remember that uh, state attorney walking out the door and she said to me, oh, you really read her or something like that. And I, I was embarrassed when she said that because I didn't mean to embarrass anybody or call them out. <laughs> so that's the point. What I do now, like I'm working, you know, with state level officials or folks kind of at a higher level. And this is what I've learned. Oftentimes, and we all know and understand the way, you know, organizations or things are structured, systems are structured. What leadership thinks is happening is usually 90% of the time clearly different than what's going on in practice. And it's important to bring everybody together. And the way things like things are structured funny and it's this hierarchical system, this takes all of that away and brings everybody in the same room. That's a great example of how an active community team or stakeholders group makes those types of changes. Because if it happened for you, I guarantee you it's happening for 500 other families in this county that are experiencing the same thing. And they're just unaware, right? Like it's a piece that got missed. There was another, I have another example out of that group. And also ELC is the early learning coalition in Florida. And that was how like our childcare vouchers were set up. Like all of our kids kept getting screened out of needing like physical therapy or like speech therapy or occupational therapy. They would always just get screened out. And we couldn't figure out why, because our infant mental health therapist kept saying like, there's a speech delay with this kid. I'm telling you, they need speech. Well, we found out it was a screener and the screener was based off of caregiver report. We all know that like if you've had young children, you typically understand what your child is saying. But the difference is, is that can other people understand what they're saying, right? You live with them. So when you're doing things based off of a caregiver report and for whatever reason, and this is, you know, parents and foster parents alike tend to like, they feel like if they say, yeah, I think there might be an issue, it's a reflection on their parenting and it's really not. And so they would just be like, yeah, they're fine. And so kids wouldn't get services that they really, really need. And it came out in one of those meetings that that was happening. And we remedied that and just said, look, if you know another clinician feels like there's some sort of delay, we're going to do a full-blown assessment to make sure. And after we made that change, it was like 98% of our kids ended up receiving some type of early intervention service because they did need it. And all this time, they were just getting screened out. I 100% understand how that could happen. One of my children was recently diagnosed with level two autism. This is the second time they've been evaluated by the ADOS screening. I mean, there were a lot of problems with when the first screening happened during COVID. The main observation period was like less than 10 minutes when they had them in a room. And that I've learned since it's supposed to be like one to three hours. But I think because of COVID, they were doing things differently. But also... The questions that they asked me, first of all, I didn't understand what some of the questions were. I just kind of assumed I knew what they were. So I wasn't really answering some of those accurately. I noticed that I had a tendency to under-exaggerate his behaviors because it made me feel bad to say that they were they were that bad. And I was like, oh, I don't want to give them all those scores. But I was like, well, I can, I can understand them. But, you know, during his second one, the doctor who is uh, administering the test was like, I don't understand any of this. Do you understand this? And I said, yes. And she's like, well, I can't just because you understand it. You're his parent and you're always with them because you have the ability to understand what he's thinking and saying because you're connected to him in that way does not mean that he is communicating to the world in that way. 
when when you're doing screeners with a caregiver, I think that we just have a tendency to like just this like, natural instinct. You don't want to admit that things wrong, right? Like exactly. It's, yeah, and here's the thing too: like pediatricians are a great example of this. So, like kids that are in care that are coming into foster care, and the the fact that they were separated from their caregiver in the first place, and I don't care if it happened at birth at the hospital, it does still impact them. They are already at risk for these delays. And the longer that we don't address it, that's where you start seeing preschool um, expulsions and things like that if it's not caught early on because they start acting out because behaviors of communication to make up for that deficiency that it, that we could have remedied. Like some of this, like one of them for like this speech thing, this girl, she was six and she had a, like a tongue tie and a lip tie and nobody discovered it because she had been in care most of her life. And it was a simple oh. fix. But pediatricians often, because for the general population and most folks go and rely on pediatricians, especially for early childhood. We don't know what to do when we're new parents, right? We depend on the doctor, but they also are medically trained, but the social, emotional, that type of developmental for babies isn't their wheelhouse. And so when you have somebody that is really highly specially trained to assess that, that is the word that we are going off of. So a pediatrician in general will say, let's wait and see, but a child that's not walking or like crawling or whatever, like it, whatever it's not mentally appropriate, that for a kid in care to say wait and see could be detrimental to their further growth and development versus somebody that's not coming from that type of situation. And so we will rely, well, the doctor said just wait and see, it's fine. A lot of times it's not because they don't, they're not looking for that. They don't have the full picture and circumstances to incorporate of like what else is going on with that baby. And that's the work of these types of specialized courts where we're really honing in and bringing in the experts in all of these areas to help remedy and heal this family from the from the baby all the way to the parents. And I know that this is something that the CBHA writer can recommend, but I honestly think every kid that comes into care should have a full speech evaluation, OT evaluation, PT evaluation, because I think so many things are missed because you blame trauma for a lot of what you see in these kids, right? The kid comes and they're not talking and you're blaming trauma. The kid comes and they're having these tantrums and you blame trauma. There's so much going on in their life that we just need to be better investigators. And how can we do that without actually having someone who's an expert in that field do the evaluation? We need Um, to pull out all the medical stuff first. And that's the trauma. I mean, it's always the trauma. And I also think every kid in care should be receiving regular occupational therapy because of the way that OT helps heal the brain from trauma. We we need to look at things completely differently. Like we need to take the proactive approach instead of the reactive approach. Um, When writing CBHAs, I see a lot of people that are like, it came here with a binky. I took that away. I don't have two-year-olds with a binky. And I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, give him a binky back. This baby just lost his Everything. We're going to make sure if he doesn't or she doesn't have these needs instead of waiting until it becomes a much bigger issue and trying to react. Fortunately for me, ECC was my first dependency case. Because of that, I didn't know anything different and I didn't realize what the differences were. And I think a lot of foster parents that are used to regular dependency cases might experience an ECC case and be like, whoa, 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 I didn't sign up for this. And I don't normally have to do this. And 
nobody's going to make me do this. And then I might be wrong, but I feel like the foster parent being an active participant in the dynamic of ECC is like really important because your participation with the parent walking them through this without it will hinder pretty much all of the things that you want, the reunification, the change, the healing, all of that stuff. I know we've talked before about like they should have foster parents that are specifically assigned to ECC programs because those are the people, if you get these placements and all of a sudden you find out, like, like let's say you have a full-time job, you have the type of job where you have to be on call or you don't have any control over your hours and you can't go to therapy. Um, you can't go to the therapy appointments with the kids and the mom and you can't go to the team meetings. Like that's, that's going to create a hindrance in the case. If you don't know and you get the placement and then you find out what the expectations are after you get the placement, I can understand why a foster parent would be unable to do that if they like physically can't attend these things because of their other commitments. Regardless, what are some of the different responsibilities for foster parents if they're in an ECC case compared to the normal dependency cases, they should be told right away, you know, what the expectations are. But in general, you know, the goal is reunification until it isn't. And if your motives for being in there aren't really to help support that, then this might not be for you. And so I do agree that they should know going in. And so as the coordinator, I made every effort. I spent a lot of time um, speaking at foster adoptive parent associations and talking with licensing and making sure every avenue that folks understood what was the work. And for a baby, that baby needs frequent contact with their parent. And if you want to have a baby in your home and an early childhood court site exists, I think that they need to be told and that needs to be worked out. If they can't participate in every family team meeting, they're with that child day in and day out. They have the most information on how the child is doing day to day, that is critical for everybody else that's working with the family to hear firsthand, including that child's parents. Being present in those family team meetings, I would probably say are more important than being at court itself, unless that particular judge or hearing officer really wants to see the interactions and wants to see the foster parent there, then that's great to help support family contact, transporting to different. We just, we don't, Our systems are not set up to help support the needs of the people that we're serving. So you may be asked to, you know, oversee in a public place some family contact time because that's the least stressful thing for the child. Other than the monthly family team meetings, I think is the main piece of that. But also understanding that as the team, we are looking for the most frequent parent-child time that we can get. And so being able to accommodate that, that might include doing two-for-two books where we read a story every night at the same time. Having really consistent routine-based things for the child is really helpful for bonding and attachment on both ends. And that's the way they can support it. Now, somebody that really wants to go in and help families, serving as a model, and if you're comfortable allowing that parent to come to events for the child, or parents should be at all medical appointments that their child is involved in, not only because it's their child, but if we want them to continue the services and supports that their child needs for continued healthy growth and development, we need to include them in the process now. You can't expect them to continue to keep up with that stuff if they were left out of everything at the very first time. So
So if assessors are coming out to your home and you don't want the parent at your home, then set up the appointment somewhere else so that the parent can attend those intervention sessions. Doing like physical therapy or occupational therapy in the caregiver's home with the absence of the parent makes no sense. If that child's going to reunify, that parent needs to know how to interact with their child. That parent needs to know what the situation is, you know, what their child's needs are for the long term instead of getting that information third hand or after the fact. So those are the main things like understanding that the team is going to ask that the parent is at all medical appointments when they are available to be there. One of the other things Things that I often ask is that babies pretty much is pretty predictable where milestones are going to be and when things are going to happen for that child and how great would it be if their parent can be present for it. They're already missing out on so much as it is. Being aware the first time that baby's going to eat solid foods, why can't we have mom take care of that? Why can't we the first time? There's no timeline when you have to give cereal the first time. Why can't their parent be the one to give it to them the first time? Those are things that we can control. They don't have to happen separately. For the, for the parent and the child. The most natural things, if you're comfortable allowing the parent to come, you know, cook dinner and people are going to laugh when I say this, but come cook dinner and put their child to bed every night. That's parenting time, right? We don't need to have family time at the McDonald's play place. It's not appropriate for a three-month-old or a four-month-old, right? It's not a natural environment. So the more often that we can incorporate the parent into the daily life of the child, maybe it's the parent picks the child up from the daycare center Monday, Wednesday, and Friday and meets the foster parent somewhere to drop them off. That counts. That's parenting time, right? That's what they're going to have to do anyways when the baby goes home. We might as well practice it now with support. So it might be things like that that you're not traditionally comfortable with. And if that's not something that's right for you, nobody's saying that you have to do it, but it, it may be that you're not asked to have a placement that's involved in this type of court situation. You mentioned how foster parents are the ones that are spending the majority of the time with the kids and their input is valuable. So many foster parents will complain about like, nobody cares about my input. They make all these decisions and they don't care what I have to say. They don't want to hear about the child and what their needs are. Well, this is a program that actually takes what you have to say. I've never felt like a valuable part of a dependency case team other than in early childhood court. I I was so excited to like do things with everybody. When the team meetings would happen, people would ask me questions about the kids and I would be able to answer them. The same with the children's parents. They would feel like they would have valuable information to share. Going to the infant parent mental health counselor. I would be there. The parents would be there. The kids would be there. The, there were times where like they would be like, hey, can you wait outside for this part where I'm going to do with the mom? Um, but also there were parts where like it was me and the mom working together with the child. That made me feel like they valued my presence and that I was part of helping the mom, which is really what I wanted. I really think most foster parents do want that. I think the benefits of being part of an ECC case far outweigh any of the negatives because you pretty much always know where everything stands. Because you're meeting so regularly, because everybody is so tight with each other, I felt really connected with the parents because we have that type of relationship that was fostered by this ECC program. We're looking at all of this and we're doing this work through the lens of what's happening for the baby. And what's happening for the baby is they are very much needing, and we need you, unfortunately, to break your own heart, is to create a strong attachment for that baby. It's really critical that it happens developmentally during those first three years because their brain is going to 
sort of formulate and structure itself based on that. You, as a foster parent, play such a critical role in that child's development. But ultimately, I am looking at that situation as we are building a family and a village around that baby forever regardless of what happens. We're bringing in all of the people that that child cares about, and that includes the foster parent. And as the coordinator, I was also working really, really hard on the other end with the parent to help them understand how important the relationship the child has with their foster parent is to continue it and not sever that because it's another loss for the baby and vice versa. And so when it is safe, and it's healthy enough to do, I encourage everybody, things shouldn't end once a case closes. I hope that folks continue contact um, because it's the children that benefit from that. That's definitely a benefit for everybody because the parents get support that they wouldn't have otherwise from having this additional foster family in their life. The children don't have to leave somebody who is important to them and that they have a relationship with. And, you know, it's every foster parent's Worst nightmare when the child leaves and you never hear from anybody ever again and you always wonder how they're doing. So, you know, the best success cases are when years and years down the road, you're continuing to hear from these families and um, that they're reaching out and using you as a resource, especially is the best. The difference of having court hearings and meetings monthly, you can't emphasize the difference that makes enough. It does. Um, As you also were part of this training that I got to attend in Judge Tupper's courtroom, that judge spoke about, uh, is it chronography or the science of time? time? Oh, yeah. The way the time plays out for kids being so much longer than for adults, Mm -hmm. because it being the percentage of their life thus far. And when a, a child is one years old and comes into your house, and is there for a year, that's an eternity. And when a five-year-old comes into your house and is there for two years, that is an eternity because the amount of time these kids in care is so much longer than what it would be for us as adults. We're like, what's the big deal if it's another month? It's a huge deal. What if that child has delays, right? Because most of the children that are coming into care, we already know are going to have some other needs that need to be met and they're not being met. And the ability to come into court decisions can be made, court orders, you know, to allow certain things to happen. One of the hardest things with implementing and a lot of peep times like child welfare, the courts will push back and say, I can't come in every month. There's no way we can do it. And my answer is always, you're going to spend the time one way or another. You're either going to spend it at the front end and doing it this way, like we're asking you to, or you're going to spend it in a four hour long hearing when something bad happens because you haven't been in for four months and Mm -hmm. everything has fallen apart. We know. A week in the lives of some of the families that we work with is like, you know, the things that happen to them that we have to delve through. So our hearings are much more efficient and we're able to move things along much quicker by coming in more frequently. It's just a reallocation of the same amount of time you're going to end up spending anyway. Well, and if you're doing it every three to four months or every six months, and this case ends up taking four years instead of one year, you've spent so much more money to yeah. have this kid yeah. in care for four years instead of and one because you don't, yeah, and the trauma, trauma. and like, so oh. it's money, it's more trauma. When you have kids come in every four to six months, they go to court. And when that happens, sometimes you'll go to court and somebody forgot to file something. So then you got to come back two or three months later and and then, or you get a new case. They have to get familiar with the case. So you have to wait like 
six to nine months for one thing to happen. And and then the parents are like, oh, well, I've got three more months before I have to go to court. So I'll just wait till then to start working on these things. Whereas when you're in court every month, you find barriers, you work through them instead of waiting six months to fix something that could have been fixed months ago. Because a lot of the times there's zero progress until you're at court. It almost seems like an anchoring system because the CBHAs I've written, when I come in, it's so early and you know, it's like right around like the first three weeks. And when I talk to parents, they're looking for someone to engage with. Usually they have not seen their children. It's yep. within the first month, three weeks or so, but they also do not have a case plan. They say they would like to do something. I'm sure they would like to do something, but they don't have anything to do because there's there hasn't been court. There hasn't been any kind of meeting. They don't have a caseworker yet. They're still with the CPI. The value and those frequent meetings is huge. The meetings and the hearings. I just want you to think for a moment, you're both parents. Can you imagine like if I came over to your house right now and I took your babies from you and just said, you know, we have a court hearing tomorrow. And then you go to court and you realize they're just going to stay away. You don't know who they're with. You don't know where they've gone. You have no clue about what's happening, where you're supposed to be, when you're going to see them. You already are facing some other life circumstances, obviously, that got you to this place. What would you do? I'd go crazy, right? I would lose my mind not knowing anything that is happening or what's going on. With these types of infant toddler courts, like we engage families as close to the time when the child was physically separated from their parent. We want to get in as close to that time as possible. For me in Florida, because we do those hearings within 24 hours of that removal, we have a really short turnaround time, which is great. Oftentimes that was where I first met those families. But in my experience, anytime like it was longer than that period to engage with a family because the traditional system, they they don't do much until that case is adjudicated. And sometimes it's 30, 40 days out. There's nothing for the family to do. But when you offer something like this, we can get started on stuff right away because we likely know what's going to be ordered. The parent agrees to do it. And we're already making plans to figure out when they can see that baby right away. First question I used to ask parents is, when's the last time you've seen your child? We need to figure that out. And then, you know, I was pulling in all of the people to make sure that that stuff moved along a whole lot quicker because it is wasted time. And parents that are facing substance use disorders or other issues, the longer that that kind of time goes without any engagement, you're going to lose them. That's why they fall off the map. That's why they fall further into substances because of the circumstances. I wouldn't be able to face it either. Like I would never want to use drugs ever, ever, ever. But if someone took my kids, that might be the thing that made me go, why not? Let's use drugs now. I remember writing a CBHA once on the woman and I... I, I liked almost everybody I worked with, to be honest. I really did. I remember writing a CBHA once on this woman and her kids were teenagers and she lost them as toddlers, got them back, lost them again as teenagers. And she was telling me that when she lost them, when they were toddlers and they'd been gone for a couple months, she started feeling like this isn't so bad. You right. Know? Like, <laughs> I get used to it. Because she was so honest. And she's like, I don't have to get up in the morning. I don't have to change diapers. I can use nope. anytime I want to. And she did get them back after like a year and a half. And then she did lose them again when they were teenagers. But I feel like that's one of the risks that the core system and DCF runs when all this time passes because people fall into overwhelm. But when I was working with ECC, when they would place a kid with me, I remember... I feel like one of the best, we really had it in sync at a certain point where the kid came to me and I was on the phone with the mom, like within 
so many hours and we had scheduled a visit. I'm sure you remember this one because CPI called and read me out. They're like, you can't do visits without checking with me first. I've got to tell you if this mom's safe. And you were like, the mom's She's like fine. 17. She's fine. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, cool. I was in court at the shelter telling the CPI, like, I know where you need to send this kid. I know a home. I know a home. I know a home. That was great. Like I had a great co-parenting relationship with that mom, even long after the child moved with a relative. No one wanted that baby back with yeah. you. Remember, she's like, I want him to go back to foster care. I remember walking out of that hearing because she had said, yes, I want this child to go to my relative. And we walked out of that courtroom and she grabbed my hand and whispered into my ear. I feel like I just made the worst mistake of my life. I kept in touch with her and like tried to encourage her and support her. We, we had that one good, man. We had a visit for her within 24 hours. Her and the dad. I got Jack Daddy involved in that. Yeah, he was on the phone with the dad. Compare that to these regular dependency cases where the kids come to my house. Nobody has any information on anything. And there's like three months before there's another visit. Well, um, that's because of our privatized system here in Florida. It's so wonderful because then it's nobody's fault, right? What is the current status of ECC? So when I started, I was working in the state of Florida. And the state of Florida was the first state to do statewide implementation in the country, which is really cool. So we went from those early like five sites, I think we had. Then it was like gradually increased. And I think there's over 30 now in the state of Florida. Florida is fully sustainable and on their own and has passed legislation to allow for, with money, an early childhood court in every single judicial circuit in the state which is really cool. And it took a long time to get there. And I'm so excited about that. Actually, this work has been going on since 2005. So this is not new. Currently, there are 15 states that are doing a statewide implementation of this type of approach. They're working to have in the next five years, at least three different sites. So three different counties in their state that have an early childhood court, if not more, there's 15. And then we have a lot over 100 individual sites across the country. On the East Coast, New Jersey is statewide implementation, Florida, Tennessee, South Carolina, Georgia. And then in the middle, we've got Oklahoma, Iowa, Ohio, Michigan, Colorado, Arkansas, Utah, Washington State. There's a lot that are doing this across the country. We've had sites in Alaska, in Hawaii. Recently, somebody from Australia has reached out. There's just a lot of really great work that's going on and it's continuing to spread because we know that it, it's working and we continue to collect data and do research and continuously make improvements. My hope is that this just becomes the norm and that it's not a small you know, subsect of 20 families in each community that are able to be supported in this approach, but all families with a child under three that are in this situation are able to get this level of support and help and and hopefully being able to remain a family or not. But everybody, every individual that's involved in the situation is able to, to heal and grow from it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.